invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James. Open to the book of James, James chapter 1. The title of my message is The Truth About Trials. The Truth About Trials. I'll give you just a moment to turn there right after the book of Hebrews and before the book of First Peter, book of James. Uh, before we begin, though, let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll go to His Word. Our Father, we are very, very grateful for this opportunity to gather as Your children who have been adopted into Your family by the merits of Christ. What an unspeakable privilege that is for us. What an unspeakable gift, indescribable gift that You have given to us. And Father, I pray that as we go to Your Word now, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would do His work that He would illumine the meaning of Your Word to us. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell richly within us and that we would come to know You more deeply uh, through knowing Your Word. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. James chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God bless the reading of His Word. Uh, the first thing I want us to notice about this, just for a little bit of context, our primary text will be verses 2 through 4, but I do want to bring your attention to the very first verse. Notice how James opens his letters. He says, James, a, a bondservant of God. Now, this word bondservant in the Greek is doulos. What he is literally saying is, I am, I am James. I am the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is this is a, a, an important thing to notice because this is, this is James. Now, there's four different James that are mentioned in the New Testament, but this James is, the, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, of course, we call James the half-brother of Jesus because Jesus was conceived of a virgin, uh, but after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph had other children the old-fashioned the old way. And so we refer to James as the half-brother of Jesus. James grew up with Christ, grew up in the same home with him. And notice how he opens his letter. He does not appeal to his familial relationship with Jesus. He doesn't say, I am James, the half-brother of Jesus. I am James. I grew up with Jesus. I am James the doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am his slave. It is especially poignant when you think that in Jesus' earthly ministry, James and Jesus' other siblings did not even believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They, they thought he was crazy until after his crucifixion and resurrection. And then he was converted and now he recognizes that his most important relationship to Christ is not as his half-brother. It is as his slave. 
And dear friends, when we are adopted into the family of God, our most important relationships are not with necessarily with our blood family. It is with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we have been adopted into the family of God. This is real humility on James' part. I am James. I am the doulos of Christ. This is true, true humility that can only be brought about by being in union with the Lord Jesus Christ through the merits of His work on the cross and His resurrection. The bondservant, the doulos of God. Now, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings in our primary text. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Life is marked by trials. If I were to ask for a raising of the hands, uh, anyone here this morning who is either going through a trial or has just come out of a trial, I would dare say almost all of our hands would go up to varying degrees. Life is marked by trials. Notice James does not say if you encounter trials. He says when you encounter trials. Trials are a part of life. Matthew 6, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each and every day we face at least a little bit of trouble. Every day. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. Job chapter 5, verse 7, Job says, for man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just as inevitably when you build a fire and you, you throw a piece of wood on the fire and the sparks fly upward, just as inevitably as that happens, we will face trial. We will face trouble. Trials are simply part of living in a fallen world. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God, trials have been a part of life. They are inescapable. Job chapter 14, verse 1. Job says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. You won't see that verse on the front of a Hallmark card anytime soon. <laughs> Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says the married will have trouble. Marriage is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's been created by God. It's a beautiful thing. But you know what? You put two sinners under the same room, under the same roof, and inevitably, you know, you're going to have some trouble from time to time. Married people will have trouble. Paul was troubled. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you can, flip over there. I want you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28. Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. Now watch this. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Do the math on that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, 
dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Other than that, everything was going great. <laughs> Paul was troubled. Jesus was troubled. John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. And then, of course, just before his crucifixion in the Garden of Eden, Jesus was troubled as, the, as he knew that the weight of all of the sins of his people were about to come down upon him. And it grieved him. He was troubled. And it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus was troubled, we certainly will face trouble. The student is not above his master. Trials are inevitable. It's just a part of life. We cannot escape them. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various Trials. Trials are varied. And the emphasis here is just on how widespread trials are and the many different forms that trials take. That trials take all kinds of forms. The emphasis here is not so much on the number, but the diversity of trials, the variety of trials. There are all kinds of trials that we face. We, we face trials in our health. We trace, uh, face trials in our finances. We face trials as Christians, oftentimes uh, even from our family members. When we become a Christian, oftentimes that will create division even within our own families. And Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he said, your enemies will be members of your own household. And sometimes, I know years past I used to read that and just kind of gloss over it, but, uh, but that's for us. Oftentimes when we become a Christian, when God saves us, it creates division. It, create, it creates an alienation of affection between us and our own family members. And I can't tell you how many people that I have talked to around the world, especially in places like Uganda and in India, uh, people who have been saved and because of their new life in Christ, their own family members, Hindus and Muslims, they've, they've abandoned them, disowned them. Did not come to bring peace, came to bring a sword. So being a Christian in and of itself will cause trials. We'll face, we will face trouble because of that. And there's no distinction here that James makes between external trials and internal trials. External trials like health and finances, internal trials being alienated from members of our own family, alienation of affection, and oftentimes... These external trials become what? They become internal trials. All different kinds of trials that we face. Now, I want us to look at the meaning of trials. What are the meaning of trials? Why do we go through trials? Aside from the fall, aside from just living in a fallen world, what is the, what is the meaning of trials? Many people think that misfortune should only come to quote-unquote bad people. And you've heard the age-old question, well, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I think most of us in this church, certainly, we understand that that's not the right question because there is no such thing as a good person. All of us are bad people. 
There is none who is good. No, not one. We're all bad people. So the real question is why does God cause good things to happen to bad people? That's the real question. But a lot of people think that if you're going through a trial, then that must mean that you're, you've got some sin in your life, you've got some uh, lack of faith in your life, and we'll talk about that in, the, in our seminar more. Uh, but bad things should just happen to bad people. And if you're a, a quote-unquote good person, if you love the Lord, then, then you shouldn't face trials. But nothing could be further from the truth. But this was a question that Asaph had. If you've ever read Psalm 73, remember Asaph? Asaph struggled over the prosperity of the wicked. He looked and he saw the righteous suffering. He saw the wicked, people that were manifestly wicked, prospering. And he stumbled over it. He didn't understand this. This was the question that he had in Psalm 73. In fact, Asaph said, when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he said this, but my feet came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. He didn't understand why the righteous suffered and the wicked seemed to prosper. Many people have this question today. Some think that adversity means that God is displeased with us, but dear friends, that is not the case. In fact, more oftentimes than not, the opposite of that is true. Oftentimes, we will suffer because of our faith in Christ. Not in spite of it. Because of our faith in Christ. Job was upright. He was blameless. He feared God. He shunned evil. And yet Job suffered like no man has ever suffered before, except, of course, for Christ himself. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7 Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He said this right before he was stoned. It's a very tender scene that right before he was stoned, he saw Jesus standing up as if ready to receive him. Stephen was not stoned in spite of his faith. He was, he was stoned because of his faith in Christ, because of his fidelity to the Lord. All of the apostles were martyred for their faith in Christ. And I just find it amazing as, as I read the New Testament and I just find myself oftentimes asking the question, what is it in the lives of the apostles that make people think that we are entitled to have our best life now? I mean, honestly, what, what, what are they reading? We just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 all the things that Paul was going through. What is it in their life? Was it, was it that Stephen was stoned? Was it that Peter was crucified upside down? Was it that Paul was beheaded, John the Baptist beheaded? What is it that these people are reading in the New Testament and think we are entitled to have our best life now, to have a cushy life? Not at all. And I would submit to you this, dear ones, that people who can take the New Testament and derive some theology that says we should not go through trials, that we should not be sick, that we should never have trials and finances. We should never go through anything. People who come up with a theology like that hate God. They hate God. Joel Osteen hates God. Now that may sound harsh, but it's not that he doesn't have the same Bible that we do. Oh, he does. It's not that he doesn't can't read it. He can. He knows what's in it. He just refuses to teach it. Joel Osteen hates God. He may smile a lot, but he hates God. And people like him that develop this prosperity theology, they hate God. 
They hate the God of the Bible, and so they come up with a different God to suit their own fallen fleshly desires. Dear friends, if you have responded to a painless gospel, you have responded to a false gospel. Salvation is free. Discipleship is not. Discipleship will cost us. Trials are often because of our faith. John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, an argument from the greater to the lesser. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That does not say some who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And dear friends, there are no exception clauses to that unless you live in the United States of America. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. And we shouldn't have to go out looking for it. It'll come. Now, we don't live in Iran. We don't live in North Korea. We don't live in a country that actively persecutes, physically persecutes Christians, at least not yet. Time will probably come when we will, but, but not yet. But if you're living godly, godly in Christ Jesus, you should at least be experiencing some soft persecution somewhere. And if you're not, then you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. There was a missionary to India named Amy Carmichael. She was active in India in the last quarter of the 1800s, first quarter of the 1900s. And Amy Carmichael wrote a poem entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? I'd like to read it to you. Amy Carmichael writes, she says, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. In other words, I hear people singing your praises. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die in rent. By ravening beasts that compass me I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that leadeth me, but thine are whole. Can he have traveled far? who hast no wound, who hast no scar. If we are truly following the Master, we will have wounds. We will have scars. Now, I want us to look at the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials. What are they designed to do? I would submit to you that one of the primary purposes of trials in our lives the reason that God allows and God causes trials to come our way is to engender in us humility. To engender in us humility. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. The Apostle Paul says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. What revelations? You might remember that Paul talks about this man who was caught up into the third heaven. He was talking of himself. He was caught up to the third heaven. The first heaven is the, 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 the air, the atmosphere. The second heaven is the stars and the planets. Third heaven, heaven, heaven. He was caught up to the third heaven. And he says, because of the surpassing greatness 
of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Because of these incredible revelations, because of this magnanimous privilege that God had given Paul, caught him up into the third heaven, there was given him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him, to keep him from exalting himself, to, to keep him from boasting in himself. God gave him this thorn in the flesh. Concerning this thorn, Paul says, I implored the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh to humble him. And dear friends, this was the Apostle Paul. This was the man who wrote roughly a quarter of the New Testament. And if the Apostle Paul struggled with pride, you bet you and I struggle with it. None of us is without pride. The Apostle Paul struggled with it. We struggle with it. It is part of living in a fallen world. None of us does anything with 100% pure motives. Now, I want to say that again. None of us in here, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, there is still the sin that dwells in us. Yes, we are a new creature in Christ. Yes, the old things have passed away. All things are made new. But there's still sin that dwells in us. And none of us does anything with 100% pure motives. And I can say this because I, I know it theologically to be true. Even as I am up here before you right now preaching God's Word, I'm not even doing this with 100% pure motives. Now, I do my best to put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. All of us should do that. But if we ever get to the point where we think we have arrived, we think that we are, we are all that in a bag of chips and we've just mastered Christianity and our motives are pure. No, sir. No, ma'am. And there is nothing like a good trial to engender in us real humility, to knock us down a notch or two. And that's what God did for the Apostle Paul. And if Paul needed it, you and I will certainly need it. They engender humility. Also, trials conform us into the image of Christ. Conformation, not confirmation, conformation. Trials conform us into the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8, 28, we all know this verse, one of the more beloved verses in the New Testament. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn, the preeminent, among many brethren. A beloved verse. Now, I want to say first what this verse does not say. Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good. It doesn't say that because you know what, dear friends? All things aren't good. It's not good when someone gets cancer. It's not good when a, when a child gets cancer. Those are not good things. It's not good when someone has a car accident. These are not good things. 
All things are not good. It's not what the verse says. But God does work all things together for the good. God in His sovereignty works all things, even all of the many, many things that we experience that in and of themselves are not good. He works all these things together in His good providence together for the good. Trials conform us into the image of Christ. They conform us into His image. They conform the student, you and I, into the image of the Master, Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 119, verse 71. David says this, Psalm 119, 71. It's a good verse to know. David says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Put that verse in your prosperity pipe and smoke it. <laughs> it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, the affliction in and of itself was not good because affliction, trials, are results of the fall. So in and of itself, the trial itself was not good. It was good for him. David said it was good. Not the affliction itself was good, but it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And this is an experiential learning. David was not saying that he sprained his ankle and it gave him some more time to kick back in the lazy boy and catch up on his reading. This was an experiential learning. And there is something about going through a hard trial, the experience of going through that, that helps us to learn in an experiential way the statutes of God, the character of God. And it's good to have God's Word memorized. That is good. But when we go through a trial, some of these verses that we might know in our head become alive to us and we, we learn them in an experiential way. Charles Spurgeon said, he said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Trials conform us into the image of Christ, and we learn about God through these trials. Through these trials. Trials make us lean harder on God. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, knowing. Trials are tests. It's easy to be faithful to God when everything is going well, right? I mean, when there's plenty of money in the bank, when our health is good, everything's just sunshine, lollipops, and unicorns. You know, it's, it's easy to be faithful to God in times like that. But when you go through a trial, that really, that really shows, you, shows you what you're made of. Then how do you feel about God then how is your fidelity towards God trials are test they test our faith and testing of our faith produces endurance testing of our faith produces endurance testing was a very familiar concept to these Jewish recipients of James letter uh, there are a number of tests in the Old Testament that they would have been very familiar with of course Abraham was probably one of the greatest examples of a man who was tested, given the ultimate test. Take your son, Isaac. 
up on the mountain sacrificing. Talk about a test. Abraham passed his test. Israel was tested. Not so much. Wandered around aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years. They, they failed their test. So testing was a prominent theme in the Old Testament. They would have understood this. The recipients of James' letter would have understood well what he was talking about. Dear friends, a true Christian will be driven to his knees by a real trial. It's been said that spiritual growth is a growth downward. When we have a lower estimation of ourselves, then and only then will we have a higher estimation of God. And there's an inverse relationship between how we view ourselves and how we view God. The higher we view ourselves, I guarantee you, the lower view you'll have of God. The lower view we have ourselves, the more that we recognize our frailty, the more that we recognize the sin that dwells in us, the lower view we have of ourselves, then that will enable, enable our view of God to be elevated. And the fires of trials will burn up false professions. These are tests. Trials burn up false professions. Uh, not to pick on Joel Osteen, but to pick on Joel Osteen. <laughs> He's the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America, quote-unquote church, because it's not a real church, but um, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, mark my word, if real persecution ever does come to this country, does come to Christians, Lakewood Church will go from the largest church in the United States of America to a ghost town overnight. You'll be able to hear a pin drop on Sunday morning at Lakewood Church. Because it's not part of their theology. Trials, a real trial, will burn up a false profession. John chapter 8, verse 31 Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. They went out from us because they were not truly of us. Oh, they played a good game for a while. You know, they, they, they used the right lingo for a while. But when the trials came, when it got hard, when persecution came, they went out from us because they were not really of us. They were not really of us. This is the rocky soil of which Jesus spoke in Matthew 13. Immediately it springs up and there's some initial hopeful signs of life. But then what happens? The sun comes out. The trials, the scorching, burns away those false professions. And this is what you see over and over and over in so many churches today, so many evangelical churches that are so focused on emotions and feelings uh, kids that go off to youth camp. You know, I remember this, when I was a kid growing up at Southern Baptist Church, we'd, every summer we'd have youth camp. We'd go off somewhere for a week or so, and we'd go and do whatever and cry and slobber all over one another and sing Michael W. Smith songs. And, you know, everybody come back and, oh, just talk about how wonderful camp was. And then a week later, back to normal. It wasn't real. Wasn't real. A true trial will burn up false professions. Now, I want us to look at our responses to trials. Look at how we are to respond to trials. Again, verse 2. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren. Count it as 
joy. Count it as joy. As we talked about what Romans 8.28 does and does not say, we need to talk about what this does and does not say. James says, count it as joy. He does not say, enjoy your trials. That's not what he says. Trials are not supposed to be enjoyed. That's why they're called trials. They're not enjoyable. We're not supposed to enjoy trials. And dear friends, please don't fall into this hyper-spiritual trap that if you are going through a trial right now and you're not enjoying it, that there's something wrong with you. You're not supposed to enjoy it. Trials aren't supposed to be enjoyed. That's why they're called trials. And years and years ago, uh, before I was truly converted, I, I used to say things. Uh, I would One of the things that I would say is, is this, and I, I just I said it because I, I really didn't understand at the time what I was saying, but I, but I can remember saying that my cerebral palsy is one of the greatest gifts that God gave to me. My handicap, I now know that's not true. Um, I was born handicapped. I've never known anything different, so this is normal for me. You know, it's not like I was able-bodied and I lost it. This is just my normal. Uh, so there's a lot of people who go through far, far worse things than I've ever dreamed about. And I'd say my, my handicap was one of the greatest gifts that God gave me. That's, that's not right. My handicap's not a gift. My handicap's a trial. Now, God, in His good providence, did decree it. He didn't cause it, and yet He decreed it. But you know what? Uh, even my handicap, though it, there's people that suffer far worse than I do, it's not fun. You know, and, and there are days, honestly, there are days I don't feel like being crippled. It's not that it's fun, it's not that it's easy. Trials aren't supposed to be easy. So don't fall into this hyper-spiritual trap that if you're going through a trial and you're not enjoying it, that there's something wrong with you, that you're not spiritual enough, you don't have enough faith or something like that. No, trials aren't meant to be enjoyed. He doesn't say enjoy your trials. He says count them as joy. This is an accounting term. What James is saying to us is that when you go through a trial... You may not enjoy it. You're not supposed to enjoy it. But you can count it as joy. Knowing that there will be joy in the midst of the trial. Through the trial. And whether we see the resolution of that trial this side of heaven. Or on the other side of heaven. You can count it as joy. You can take it to the bank. There will be joy. There will be joy even in the midst of a trial. It doesn't mean they're fun, but we can have joy through a trial. You can take it to the bank. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. You don't have to turn there, but I, I love this passage, what Paul here, here says, because it's so transparent. I want to read it to you. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8-10. through 10. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but we're not forsaken. 
struck down, but were not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. I love the transparency. One of the things that I marvel at over the Word of God and so appreciative of in the Word of God is that the Bible never hesitates to record the struggles and sometimes the failings of its own characters. You know what? Paul went through some severe trials. We read about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 a moment ago. And you know what? They got to him. It was hard. He said, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. I, I don't understand what's going on here. We're perplexed about this. But we don't despair. Persecuted. But in the midst of our persecution, we're not forsaken. Struck down, but we're not destroyed. Oftentimes, God allows us as His children to get right up to the brink. To get right up to the brink where we feel like we're going to be crushed. And we waver. Our faith wavers sometimes, doesn't it? It happened to John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He baptized Jesus. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness. Baptized Christ. Said, I'm not worthy to, to, to tie his sandals. And yet, John the Baptist found himself in a prison cell. Jesus' ministry was not unfolding the way in which he had envisioned it to. And John the Baptist finds himself in a dank, dark prison cell about to have his head lopped off. And so he sends a question from, by his disciples to Jesus. And they took this question to Jesus. Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? How did Jesus respond? Are you kidding me? Are, are, are you, did, did John the Baptist seriously ask you to ask me that question? No man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. Pretty much all of us, isn't it? John the Baptist got to this point where his faith wavered. It wavered. Asaph, in Psalm 73, got to the point where his faith wavered. His feet came close to stumbling, as he said. But then in verse 17, read, read Psalm 73 sometime really soon. But in verse 17, verse 17, he says, But then I came into the sanctuary of God. My feet came close to stumbling. But then I came into the sanctuary of God. And God graciously just as Asaph got up to the brink, just as Asaph, it's like he peered off, stared off into the abyss, just about ready to plummet into the abyss. And God allowed him to come into his own sanctuary. In other words, God gave him his perspective, God's perspective. And then in verse 17, everything changed for Asaph. 
Paul got right up to the edge of the abyss. John the Baptist got right up to the edge of the abyss. Asaph got right up to the edge of the abyss. And they peered off into it. But God always, always reaches out with His strong arm and He prevents us from falling off into the abyss. He prevents our feet from stumbling. He may let us get right up to the edge, but He'll always pull us back. He'll always pull us back. Praise be His name. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How do, we, how do we know this? We know this by studying. By studying God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.15 We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Dear friends, if you've never done a study on the attributes of God, please do yourself a favor and study God's attributes. Study His omniscience. Study His omnipotence. Study His faithfulness. Study His sovereignty. Study His wrath. Study His love. Study His jealousy. Study His mercy. Study His aseity. Study His decree. If you've never done a study on the attributes of God, do yourself a favor. Study God's attributes. We cannot trust someone whom we do not know. And the more we know God, the more we will trust God. How do we know God? We know God by studying Him in His Word. And the more we know Him, the more we trust Him. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Know about God. Study God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-7. through 7, Peter says this, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him, because He cares for you. What a wonderful promise that we as Christians, we can cast all of our anxiety upon God. Why? Because He cares for us. And the more we know God, the more we can cast our cares upon God. Now, a little bit of an illustration here, if I can take just a slight tangent. Ever since I was a little boy, I've always been fascinated with astronomy, stars and planets. And, and uh, you've probably heard some of these statistics before, but I looked it up. The mass of the Earth, the mass of the planet that you and I are on, is 6.6 sextillion tons. 6.6 sextillion tons. Do you know how much that is? I don't either. I don't even know how many zeros that is. But that's just the mass of our earth. We could put 1.3 million earths inside of our sun. And our sun is just an average size star. There's a star out there named Canis Majoris. Okay, 1.3 million earths in our sun. You could put 9.3 billion with a B, billion suns inside this one star, Canis Majoris. And that is one star of billions in our one galaxy. And our one galaxy is only one galaxy of, we don't even know how many galaxies. 
The human mind, I mean, we can't comprehend that. Why do I say all this? Because I love the way 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, it actually reads in the Greek. When Peter says, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you, you know what this literally, how it literally reads in the Greek? It says, it matters to him about you. We can cast all of our anxiety upon him because it matters to him about you. The one who spoke the universe into existence, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, the one who spoke this into existence in an instant, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is, it matters to him about you. It matters to him. Selah. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. This word endurance in the Greek, it's hupomene. Hupomene. Hupa, you probably recognize that hypodermic needle goes under the skin. Hupa, underneath. Mone is the Greek word for remain. So literally, endurance is to remain underneath. Trials produce endurance. Trials produce an ability in us by the grace of God to remain underneath the trials. Not to be extracted from the trials, but God gives us His sufficient grace to hopomene through the trial, to remain underneath it. God sustains us underneath these trials. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, who pomenade the cross, endured the cross. God did not take the cross away. God sustained him through the cross. There is no greater trial than that. The testing of our faith produces endurance. God does not remove the trials, dear ones. He sustains us through them. They produce in us endurance to hypomene through the trials. Now I want us to look at the fruit of trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The fruit of trials, the perfect result. This is not talking about sinless perfection. Anyone who would hold to that doctrine that you, as a Christian, you become, you can become sinless and you can result, uh, reach a state of perfection, does not truly understand total depravity. Does not understand the indwelling sin that we all have. Does not understand the gospel. Salvation is not perfection. It is direction. Which direction is your life going? God in Christ has equipped us with everything that we need to face trials. If you're in Christ, you are fully equipped with everything you need to face whatever trial it is that you are in right now or will one day come to you. Fully equipped to face these trials. We have the Bible. We have God's perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient Word that we can be 
thoroughly equipped unto every good work. We have the Bible. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Dear friends, when you became a Christian, you became a partaker of the divine nature. You are indwelt by the third person of the triune Godhead. And the Holy Spirit is not a weakling. We have God's Word. We are indwelt by His Spirit. He illumines the meaning of God's Word to our hearts, to our minds. He enables us to obey God's Word. We have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the fellowship of the brethren. We have the fellowship of the brethren. The Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens. You have God's Word, you are indwelt by His Holy Spirit, and you have the fellowship of the brethren. You're to bear one another's burdens. And so when you are going through a trial, your brothers and sisters in Christ are to help you bear that burden. When you see a brother or sister in Christ going through a trial, you are to come alongside that person and help them bear that burden. Being a part of the family of God, we are thoroughly equipped to face any trial that we go through. It is the family of God. This is one of the, the beauties of God's family. And uh, I know some of you have experienced what I'm about to describe. Maybe, probably a lot of you have not. But uh, just in my traveling around the world, one of the beautiful things that I love about the gospel and one of the things that I just marvel at is that it does not matter where in the world I am. I was just in Honduras a couple weeks ago. I've been in Central America, South America. I've been in African countries. I've been in European countries. I've been in India. I've been in uh, Australia, New Zealand, Philippines, Singapore. It doesn't matter where I am. When I'm with like-minded believers in Christ, there is an instant bond there. There is an instant fellowship there. There is an instant love there. I love these people, and they love me. Why? Because we're family. Even if I've just met them, even if I've just met them, I know that if, if they had to, I know that they would give their life for me. And I would give my life for them. All of that to say this. Know that when you go through a trial, you do not go through it alone. You have family right here. You have family all over the world. We are to bear one another's burdens. We have a closer relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe that we have just met than we do with members of our own blood kin who are not like-minded in Christ. It's the beauty of God's body. That's the beauty of Christ's body. We have the Bible. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the fellowship of the brethren. We are part of God's family all over the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-7. through seven, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, because your faith is not perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Trials conform us into the image of God. They keep us humble. They help us to learn God about God experientially. And also trials ultimately result to the praise and the glory and the honor of Christ. Sometimes God is most glorified in us, not in times when everything is going well, but when we are going through trials. And through the trial, through the suffering, through the persecution, we remain faithful to Christ and we honor Him and glorify Him. So ultimately, dear one, know that when you're going through a trial, it is not only for your personal good, which it is, but it is also ultimately for the praise and honor and glory of God. Everything that God does is for His glory. Our salvation, our salvation, yes, we are the beneficiaries of it, of course, but ultimately, your salvation and my salvation is not just primarily for us. It's to result in the praise and the honor and the glory of God. A phrase that's repeated three times in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of His grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Sometimes God is most glorified in us when we suffer. And our trials, ultimately, are to the praise of the glory of His grace. You may have heard that song, a line of which says, When He was on the cross, I was on His mind. No, no, no. Not ultimately. Yes, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated His own love, own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, He did died for, die for us, but ultimately... He died for God. Our salvation is to result in His praise, in His honor, in His glory. When He was on the cross, the glory of God was on His mind. Philippians 1 verse 29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now that's a verse that kind of goes against the grain of most evangelical thought, does it not? Our faith in Christ has been granted to us and our suffering for Christ. It has been granted. It is Suffering for Christ is something that is granted to us to the praise and the honor and the glory of His grace. Growing up, and I'll, I'll close with this, growing up Southern Baptist, uh, maybe many of you can attest to this, uh, we would have Wednesday night prayer meeting. We, we'd have, of course, church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, but we have Wednesday night, little midweek prayer meeting. That's what they called it anyway, prayer meeting. And we'd go and we'd have some kind of little warmed-up meal that usually wasn't real good. And, and then the, the pastor would get up and uh, you know, ask the church, does anybody have any prayer requests? What, you know, Wednesday night prayer meeting, what are 99 out of 100 of the prayer requests for? Somebody's sick. Somebody's sick. Somebody's in the hospital. Somebody's having surgery. 99% of them. That's, that's what they are. And dear friends, I'm not against, don't hear me wrong, I'm not against praying for people who are in the hospital or who are sick. Absolutely. We should do these things. And we should pray that if it would be God's will, that he would bring healing to a person who needs it. And I'm not against that. But maybe, 
maybe instead of spending all of our time praying for God to remove these various trials, maybe we should spend a little bit more time praying things like this. God, give me your sufficient grace through this trial. Use this trial in my life to conform me more into the image of the Master. Use this trial in my life to humble me. Use this trial in my life to make me lean harder on you. Use this trial in my life to help me grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Word of Christ dwells richly within me, use this trial to conform me into the image of my Master. And help me through this trial to carry your name well so that it would result to the praise and honor and the glory of Christ Jesus. Maybe we should spend a little bit more time praying for things like that. So dear ones, as you go through a trial, you're not supposed to enjoy it, but you can count it as joy. You can count it as joy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word that you have preserved for us. Lord, that it is perfect. It is not only perfect, it is sufficient for everything that we need. Uh, that we will be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. That we can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that it is that in your good providence, you have seen it fit to to grant us the privilege of suffering for Christ. Father, when we go through these trials, help us to have your perspective. Help us to, even though we may get to the brink like Paul did, like John the Baptist did, like Asaph did, and our feet may come close to stumbling, let us rest knowing that you will secure us. Keep our feet from stumbling, Lord. Grow us through these trials. Help us to carry your name well to a watching world. These things we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.